Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hi everyone, welcome to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today we're going to have a different view of many of the clinicians that you have listened to on my podcast. Even though I hardly ever interview psychiatrists, I don't think I've had many, many. It's usually social workers or uh, counselors, psych uh, psychologists, and I'm sure the listener is going, what on earth is the difference? Because that's what we hear, right, Tamala? Tamala um, that is correct. Uh, people say, what is the difference? Psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, social workers. Oh, there are just so many names. But anyway, today we I have here with me an I'm really happy to have her on my, as my guest on my podcast, Aruna Tumala. She is a psychiatrist, but a very different one. And you will understand why. Because she just told me like two minutes ago, we were just chatting before the interview. And she said, my mission is to talk about this and to change the face of psychiatry. Because today, especially here in the US, and I have to say in Brazil is no different Aruna, it's the same. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about medication, right? What are the symptoms? Let's treat the symptoms, stuff them up with medication and get rid of the symptoms and we're treating them. So this is a very different approach from what she does. So that's what we're going to talk about today. She is holistic. And I know that this word holistic, we immediately think of India. And yes, she's from India. <laughs> yes born and uh, raised in India actually um, completed my medical education and a psychiatric residency in India from uh, my institute my alma mater uh, National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences which is in Bangalore and uh, then after that I immigrated to the United States I repeated my psychiatric residency here at the Medical College of Wisconsin and after that, I completed a one-year fellowship in geriatric psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually yeah. trained in geriatric psychiatry. Yeah. And then um, then I became a mother. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of changes everything, it, doesn't it? It changes everything. It changes everything. <laughs> because, so, I, yeah, I, I'm not a mother, but I would think that, especially if you're a doctor, I think you you look at your kid and you go, what do I want for him or for her? in the future in terms in your area psychiatry do i want this to be the same or would i want to be an agent of change and that's the option you took and that's what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about medication the ups and downs the pros and cons mm -hmm. and of course before we even forget i don't want you guys to after this interview to stop taking your medication because oh maybe yes. that's not a good thing for me and we will touch on that too but first of all aruna tell me about your story what so what brought you here after you finished your training in psychiatry so so really what happened was when I was doing my second residency here in the U.S. the the seeds of what I think um, the way I think and practice were definitely sown in India my training in especially my psychiatry training in India 
um, was always about the mind and the body together. So much so that our degree was called neuropsychiatry because it was impressed upon us that we don't understand why mental illness happens, but at the very least, we know that different body diseases uh, and especially neurological diseases can cause mental illness. So in India, if I did not do a complete physical exam, including a neuro exam, and if needed, if I did, I, I could get a CT scan of the head to look at, are there any tumors or is there any bleed happening within the brain? If for anyone, if I suspected, you know, the person could be presenting with psychosis, but I had to do the preliminary investigation, first rule out physical causes in the body and in the brain before I could say that this person is purely psychiatric, uh, psychiatrically ill. Mm -hmm. So that was my training, actually. So really my training in neurology, my experience and expertise in neurology was really very, very fine tuned. Um, And then I come here and I can hug on my first day. Uh, Everybody knew I had to just repeat my residency because, you know, uh, U.S. uh, medical, I mean, the American Board of Mm -hmm. Psychiatry did not recognize my Indian degree. Mm -hmm. So I had to repeat my residency. But everybody in the residency program knew that I was a practicing psychiatrist back in India. So on my very first day, I was assigned to the mental health inpatient unit. And there was a a first-year psychiatry resident and a medical student that was posted along with me. And the attending tells me, hey, Dr. Tamala, you already are a psychiatrist. Why don't you demonstrate how you do a psychiatric evaluation? So I said, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do it. So I started to talk to the patient, went over the questions, and, you know, I had a little bit of an idea. And then I got up with my stethoscope and my knee hammer and also had a fundoscope. You know, uh, this was considered very important back in India is that we look in the eyes to look for raised intracranial pressure because that is one of the first indications of a tumor. And I've diagnosed people with, you know, would present psychiatrically, but would have these kinds of conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it wasn't often, but, you know, back in India, I had diagnosed somebody who had come with anxiety, but she actually had thyroid cancer somebody with psychosis that actually had neurosyphilis. So, um, and another patient who presented with psychosis, but she actually had pseudotumor cerebri, which is a condition where the pressure in the brain increases without Mm -hmm. actually having the tumor. And the treatment for all these conditions are very, very different. You know, Mm -hmm. yes, we may give them medications, but we also have to take care of the underlying neurological or uh, physical disease. Here, so on my first day here, I stood up to examine the patient And the attending goes, wait, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm examining the patient. I'm doing the physical exam. And he says, oh, no, no, we don't do that. And then how are you going to rule out organic causes? Oh, we have an internist uh, to do that. Um, It's medical legal liability. You don't touch the patient. But in India, like if I wanted, I would get chest X-ray. I would get a CT scan, uh, blood work, everything. Like before diagnosing somebody with a psychiatric disease, I had all these uh, tools at my disposal. So many times, first episode psychosis, I would always get a CT scan because first episode psychosis, even in a young person can be from a brain infection or it can be from a a tumor in the brain or, you know, things like that. So uh, I felt very cramped. And the other thing that was very different is that there in India, we always admitted a family member. The patient goes back to the family. And the family needs to know how to support and take care of the patient. Wow. 
Uh, and also the, the staff to patient ratio was very, very low. We had a lot of patients to take care of. So mm -hmm. the nursing, that also was a reason. And we got so much of good collateral information. We really understood the family system, worked with the family. Whereas here, especially in the hospitals, the family was not there. I mean, in fact, I was one of the psychiatrists that would always insist on doing a family session. Because just with the patient, you don't get the whole 360 degree view. But anyway, mm -hmm. these were the two things. But then, you know, as I became pregnant and I began to learn about all the toxins that are there in our food system and everything, I became very concerned about the effect of those toxins on my body when I was trying to get pregnant. So I had changed all of that, mm -hmm. switched over to organic diet, tried to use only clean products, but still it was very much in the infancy. Then my children happened and even more, oh my God, I'm not going to eat the food in the hospital. I was pregnant for the second yeah. time nursing. I would go hungry, but I would not eat the food in the hospital because it was all processed, packaged, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I began to think, hey, if I feel that way, how is this food that my patients, I mean, they were eating the same food in, from the cafeteria. How is that affecting their brain? How is that affecting their mood, their mental health? And that these questions actually made me go down the path of, you know, ask Dr. Google, right? That's where we all start. Mm -hmm. And came across lots of wonderful information, which I was not taught in both my residencies. Even, I mean, the emphasis on the importance of nutrition was not there. Like, how do you eat to improve your mental health? Don't know. That was not mm -hmm. taught at all. But luckily for me, my research took me to an organization called American Board of Integrative uh, Health and Medicine, called ABIHM. It's called Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. I looked it up and I immediately signed up for a conference. I went for their first, my first conference was in October, 2013. And I was changed. I was like, yeah. I came back with so much information. That's when your mission, mission became clear to you. It became absolutely clear. Yeah. I knew I had yeah. to do my diploma in ABIHM. And then I knew I had to do functional medicine. So ABIHM was a mixed bag. You know, I was introduced to Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, mm -hmm. functional medicine, and you could pick what spoke to you. So I picked functional medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. And then within six months, I got my diploma in ABIHM and I started my training in Ayurvedic medicine and functional medicine. Couple more years later, so by 2015, I, had, I was done with this and I felt confident in incorporating uh, this new way of thinking and, and everything I began to question. So where is the evidence for chemical imbalance? Is there really mm -hmm. a chemical imbalance? And when I went and looked in the research, there there's is, no proof. Zero. There is no, yeah. there is no proof. And again, and not only me, there are many researchers like Dr. Joanna Moncrief, uh, David Hayes. Uh, these are people from UK right here in the US. There's uh, Irwin Kerr. She's a psychologist who's done a lot of studies about that majority of the uh, you know treatment response that we think antidepressants are causing is actually the placebo response. You cannot differentiate it from the placebo. This is Irving Kirsch's work. And then mm -hmm. Peter Gosha, who's a Danish physician, and he was the founder of mm -hmm. Cochrane. He did a lot of meta-analysis about different psychiatric drugs. And mm -hmm. he has actually come out and said that less than 2% of psychiatric drugs are actually useful. And the remaining 98% are at best just useless, but at worst, they cause grievous harm in terms mm -hmm. of side effects, in terms of actually increasing psychiatric morbidity, meaning that a person that is exposed, especially to antidepressants, actually experiences more depression episodes. It reduces stress resilience. 
It makes the person unable to cope with life mm -hmm. and increases rates of disability. Robert Whitaker is a journalist. He's written a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. Yeah, and I've read that book. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a every mental health professional should read that book, and I make it a compulsory reading for my patients. So in my practice, I would say less than one to two percent of patients I put them on medications, mm -hmm. and um, and that too mainly in psychosis and never medication alone. Mm -hmm. So then if the if the then the question is, okay, then why are people having all these diseases? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, but that's the main thing, right? And one thing that I want to ask you, I read, I think it was on your blog that you said, uh, you said oh, the, the chemical imbalance, let's just start there, right? We, we actually just had this very uh, controversial article, very recent, right? And I mean, all the media is all over it, talking yeah. about depression and serotonin, that finally they had this very comprehensive review, and they yes. came to the conclusion that uh, this idea that, oh, it's it's lack of serotonin or low levels of serotonin that cause depression. No, it's not that. Yeah. And it's now proven that that's not it. So it's yeah. really not chemical imbalance. But my thing is, so we have our listeners now, many of them are dealing with mental health issues they have depression they have anxiety i mean let's not even go there with the pandemic and everything and many of them are taking medication and of course i don't want them to listen to this and go home and say throw it in the trash so no. what options do they have in this especially here because i know that like 70 percent of my listeners are here in the u.s and if they go to the doctor as you said they're very linear they're symptom based yeah it's all yes. about the symptoms and it's all about medication yeah yeah so what can they do because that's what they're gonna get yes so here's what I mean with the, the training in Ayurvedic medicine and uh, functional medicine and my own clinical experience um, what I have found my insights are that there are only three root causes for any disease literally physical or mental illness it's bad diet Mm -hmm. It is trauma, especially early life trauma, both physical trauma, mm -hmm. like head trauma is a big, big factor for many mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, mild concussions uh, can be very, very uh, causative. Um, and number three is toxins. So this is the trifecta. It's bad diet, trauma, toxins, these three things. Mm -hmm. and, and bad what, diet and toxins are related, right? Yes. Yeah. But toxins have an independent effect in, in, in addition to the, okay. the wrong diet or the bad diet itself. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say bad diet, what I mean is actually the standard American diet, which is processed high in sugar, um, uh, franken chemicals, all kinds of chemicals that are basically preservatives. They don't have any nutritive value. And uh, to extend the shelf life, and I mean, like, you know, all purpose flour, there's nothing in it. All-purpose flour has, and most of the breads or, you know, any packaged food that you find is made up of cornstarch or high fructose corn syrup. These are all, they don't really have any nutritive value to it. And in creating all these things, they do have, they have to add, the co companies have to add many different chemicals, not even artificial flavors, artificial dyes. All of these are chemicals without nutritive value. So mm -hmm. the diet is low in nutrition. That's one problem. The second problem is the toxins that we are exposed through food. And I'm not even talking about the pesticides and the herbicides, but then chemicals that we put on our body through our makeup, through our toothpaste, the uh, face care, uh, body care, hair care products, deodorants, all of this, the chemicals that exist in them, they have 
a dual effect. One, they're directly uh, stimulating or aggravating to our immune system. Our immune system gets aroused. But these are chemicals. The immune system is trying to fight a chemical, but it's not a biological agent. So it cannot really make an antibody and neutralize it. Or, But then it, it just stays in our bodies and constantly triggers this inflammation. The second way that it work, it causes damage is that many of these chemicals, especially, and to your listeners, anything that you use that has a chemical fragrance that's made of phthalates or parabens, they're all endocrine disruptors. They mimic your estrogen, which is why we are seeing PCOS, acne, low sperm counts, and uh, infertility in both men and women. Mm-hmm. All of these, so it's it's all interrelated. Mm-hmm. Our hormonal imbalance causes mental illness. And these three things, the diet, trauma, and toxins, the first thing that they do is they damage our gut lining the mm-hmm. le- which, and causes leaky yeah. gut. Leaky mm-hmm. gut is the first step in the formation of any disease. And when the gut becomes leaky, it allows the bacteria from the microbiome, especially the bad ones, to uh, uh, release, I mean, to enter through the gut lining into our bloodstream, triggering inflammation. Mm-hmm. It allows toxins that are in our gut, uh, wall, in the gut cavity to enter. Um, and the second thing is that when the gut lining is weak, now these cells cannot make digestive enzymes. So our food doesn't get digested. So we develop malabsorption syndromes. And so the always, I mean, with every patient, Paula, when I take them back in time to the earliest time they became sick, almost always there is either, in fact, as far back as infancy, uh-huh. these people in adulthood, when they're experiencing depression, anxiety, they start off with colic as infants. Mm, makes then, sense. Yeah. Then stomach pains, ear infections, but the gut role of the gut is so clear when we actually do a timeline of Mm -hmm. all symptoms. That's so interesting. Do you have a friend or a loved one who struggles with suicidal thoughts, ideation, or even previous attempts? If you do, I have some information for you. I know that the situation is scary. And many times, we want to do the best we can to help, but we don't know how. Over the course of my 15 years working in this field, I have learned how to address these issues, and that's what I want to share with you. And for that, I have just created an online course that will guide you step-by-step on how to sit down and have this difficult conversation. The course is called How to Help Suicidal People, and I purposely took a very straightforward approach so that when you finish, you will feel prepared to take action in a safe, non-judgmental, and compassionate way. You will learn about the mental state of a suicidal person, how it impacts the way they view their personal crisis, how to bring hope into the conversation, how to prepare yourself to listen to them, especially when they talk about their emotional pain, how to create a safety plan, how to assess their risk level, and much, much more. The course comes in six modules and it's all videos with very simple language and reading materials for quick reference. If you think that this course is for you, click on the link on my notes or go to my website 
understandsuicide.com and click on the course tab. There you can also watch a free sample and have more information about the course. Thank you. <clears throat> Actually, and, and the second one too, I'm sure you listen and you know, um, what is his first name? G Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate. Gabor yes, Mate. Yeah, I've read yeah. his books and I listen to him a lot and his focus is on trauma, right? But yes, he has a very, yeah. very similar uh, point of view as you. I mean, it's, yeah. No, it's not about medication. It's about the trauma and going going back to the root of, yes. of, of that trauma. And of course, his area of expertise is addiction, which is yes. now, of course, so that you can get treatment in this country, it's a disease. And he's going, no, it's not a disease. It's actually it's a, a result of trauma. Yeah, it's a response yes. to a trauma that was not processed or treated yes. or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So you're talking about nutrition. So let's talk about trauma. How does that impact your, your health? So, um, so, and this is how I came to it, you know, from a functional medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, everything that I'm talking about. 5,000 years ago, the ancient seers of India <laughs> wrote it down that leaky gut is the first thing <laughs> yeah. that happens. And also they said the number one root cause is actually what they said is a mistake that the intellect, that our mind makes. And what is that mistake is that we are not worthy. Hmm. When I first read it, I was like, I just glossed over it. But And then mm -hmm. because I was so focused on healing the gut, it was bringing in results. But then as I was talking to my patients, Trauma kept coming up, trauma kept coming up, trauma kept coming up. Mm -hmm. And then when I put the two and two, what I was reading in Ayurveda and here, and of course, you know, the studies now in modern medicine also show this. So the pathway is that when there is that early life trauma, what it really makes the child feel is that she or he is not worthy. Yeah. And it results in a sympathetic overactivity, the chronic stress response, which is the cortisol response. Mm -hmm. So because now the child, because of that inability to feel valued and worthy and attended to, it gives rise to a state of inauthenticity where the child is constantly trying to modulate herself to the needs of others in, in her environment. At the sacrifice by sacrificing her own authenticity and individuality and her own self worth. Mm -hmm. So, this, I mean, from a psychological standpoint, we call it as adults, we say, oh, she's just borderline. No, what is actually happening is this is what I, I don't like the word borderline either because no, it's very, it's very, st the stigma is very, huge. Yeah. yeah, it's it's actually chronic PTSD is, you know, the 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 fear of rejection, abandonment, the mm -hmm. over uh, idealization and devaluing that we see can all be ex explained on the basis of that early life trauma that does not allow a child to become whole and authentic mm -hmm. yeah. and learn how to value themselves. You're always alert and always trying to prove yourself, always afraid of everybody because you think you're going to be abandoned at any time because you, you're worthless in any, any way. So again, yeah. it's the parasympathetic overworking and overworking a lot of cortisol. Yeah. Yeah. Sympathetic. And then how the body gets pulled in is that that cortisol is not only toxic to our brains, it eats away at the hippocampus, which is why many uh, children that experience childhood trauma have very patchy memories of their of their past. That's a, mm -hmm. a big indicator that there was trauma when they say, oh, I don't really remember my childhood all that much. Mm. Yeah, I, that's an indicator that there was trauma there. Um, but the second thing that cortisol does is that it's toxic to the gut lining. 
Oh. So there again, we see. There again, you go to the gut. There again, yeah. we see it goes through the gut. And so these are the two root causes. One is that lack of self-worth. And the second one is the uh, the leaky gut and the inflammation. The Then the microbiome gets disrupted, malabsorption syndromes. And so what happens is that on the one hand, you're not getting the nutrition to support functions within the cell. Every cell mm -hmm. in our body needs the nutrition to do its job. And so the cells are not functioning. Your liver is not detoxing. Your brain is not making neurotransmitters. Your heart is not pumping very well. You know, every organ you can. Your what do you expect, are, right? And you don't know why you're feeling depressed? Yeah, exactly. And then we right. say, oh, the neurotransmitter levels are low. No, that is such a, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And even there, because our cells are still trying to do their job, the reason why the study by, you know, the one that you quoted is by John mm -hmm. Moncrief, why they don't really find uh, these serotonin imbalances because our bodies are still trying to make the best of the situation. So it's not that they're in a chronically low state of serotonin. It's not that. So that is something to, to even keep in mind. Yeah, let, let me just, uh, you were talking about the uh, one, one of the first signs is this patchy memory of your childhood. And I was immediately taken to my first session with a, with a, a psychologist. He was a psychologist. I was in my late, mid-20s. And I remember uh, the first session, he started asking me all these questions about my childhood and about my parents, my grandparents. And I, I, all I could do is like, oh my goodness. My, my mind was like, oh, no, no, I didn't know a thing. Couldn't answer one question. And he said, okay, so here's where we're going to start. You need to recover that memory. You don't, don't know anything about your childhood. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I really don't. And I, you know, most of it, I, I still don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see, the, the there is a dual function here uh, because of that, you know, when you are in that stressed out state, you become hyper-focused on the immediate situation. So you're not able to, you're in a survival mode. It's the mm -hmm. amygdala activation. Yeah. It is sympathetic mm -hmm. uh, cortisol activation. Um, and also there is a protective function when the environment is so threatening, you don't want to remember everything about it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. other, you know, uh, acute trauma survivors, whether it is of rape or mugging, they also cannot remember because it's a survival mechanism. We don't want to remember everything. Because mm -hmm. um, you can be re-traumatized, right? You can be, yeah, you can re-traumatize yourself. I mean, that's what the nightmares are about and flashbacks and all of these things. They're pretty traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes yeah. this trauma therapy work, um, I mean, I do believe that once you have to kind of unburden and unload your past history of trauma. But after that, we have to focus on healing in the present moment. That's mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so really for your listeners, you know, th my biggest advice is that no, please don't stop your medications because psychiatric medications are highly addictive. Mm -hmm. Everyone will go through a withdrawal, whether you're taking an antidepressant or an antipsychotic or an anti-anxiety, they all cause withdrawal. And when you are physiologically, when you're toxic, when you have inflammation, your body cannot go through a withdrawal, a sudden withdrawal. So yeah. in my practice, what I do, we first institute our treatment. We reduce inflammation, start the detoxification, teach sympathetic and parasympathetic balancing techniques with meditation and breath work and all of those things, which by the way, doesn't take long. It takes mm -hmm. about three to four weeks. I mean, some people... Most of my patients report 30% improvement in two to three weeks of starting our protocol. Wow. Wow. That's huge. It doesn't take long. Um, and then by, so by about the four week appointment or six week appointment, 
we do talk about coming off of the medications and we do it in a very gradual manner. Recovering is very, very easy. That's one thing I want your uh, listeners mm -hmm. to know. We can, I mean, my oldest patient, she came to me when she was 72 with a 40 year history of, no, actually 50 year history of irritable bowel syndrome, diagnosis of anxiety, depression, and she was on antidepressants for 40 years. Wow. Um, yeah. And but you were she, able to, to taper off the medication? She is completely, I mean, number one, we reversed her IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. Then uh, she got better from her anxiety and her depression. And and then the last thing was we tapered her anti. She was on like 225 milligrams of FXR. So we took almost, um, I want to say 16 months we took. I mean, she was in no hurry. She was like, no, of course not. Like, yeah. No yeah. hurry, no hurry. And, and it she, will take time after 50 years of taking antidepressants yes. and, and yeah. medication, yeah. of course. Yeah. And we support, We you have to continue with the detoxification, the nervous system balancing therapies. And also I do use certain supplements that specifically, depending on the medication that we are tapering off, we do, I've come up with protocols that we can help. Um, but the first thing always for all my patients is to do an elimination diet for at least three months. So number one, no junk processed food, go back to eating, just get real food and prepare. Of course, this, you know, it, you have to work towards it. And yeah, I tell okay. my patients, can you, can we just clarify what is real food? Because people say, okay, I, I will stop eating at fast food places. And then they go home and they buy all this box and ready to go for the, what is real food? Let's give them some ideas. So real food is whole unprocessed, meaning it has not gone through any kind of uh, factory processing at all. So it would be meats that are, that are not cured. They're not cooked. It's just raw meat like chicken um, or fish or anything that you bring home and then you prep it and then you cook it mm -hmm. for yourself. Uh, the second thing would be uh, vegetables, fruits, whole grains like rice or flour. Yes, you, I mean, I, you can get whole wheat flour um, and different kinds of grains, you know, uh, quinoa, rice, wild rice, uh, then lentils, uh, not even, I don't even like to get canned beans. I get dried lentils and I soak them overnight. And that way you can, you have the option of sprouting them, which is very nutritious, or you can just pressure cook them the next day and make a nice meal out of it. So really a good way to think about is like when you're in a grocery store, just shop on the periphery. Don't go into the aisles at all. <laughs> that's a great tip. Yeah. Cause that's where all the boxes and cans are, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and anything, if you look at the ingredients and if you cannot pronounce the names, please don't. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had someone say that if, if it has more than five ingredient, ingredients, don't buy it. Mm. That's <laughs> a good one too. That's yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So you, you start by working on your diet. Yes. Uh, what else? So, I mean, let me tell what the diet is. It's no junk, okay. no processed food. You're eating real food, whole food. Because when people have illnesses, any, any illness, their digestion is not healthy to di digest raw food. I also recommend no salads. Now, this will everybody in the U.S. Yeah. Is going, salads are healthy. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me if you need more information as to why that is. But actually giving up salads, you can have smoothies, but salads are not at all good for you if you cannot digest them. Um, How do you so, know if you can digest them? If you have any symptom, you're not digesting. 
Oh, okay. If you have like cramps or, or no, no, no. Gas, any, no? If you have, if you're struggling with any disease, your di- your digestion is low. This comes from Ayurveda. Oh, okay. Okay. Your digestive fire will be not healthy if you're having any disease. So if you're having any chronic disease, acute disease, like for instance, when you fall sick with the flu, will you eat a salad or will do you want to have just brothy foods and all of that? Mm. See, this knowledge, this wisdom exists everywhere, but we don't connect the two. Mm-hmm. Why don't we feel like eating salads and uh, heavy uh, meals when you're having the flu is because when your body is fighting the infection, there's not enough power in your digestive tract to digest heavy foods. So naturally, we gravitate towards easily digestible, brothy, chicken soup kind of foods. Yes, yeah. So listen is, to your body, right? Yeah, really. And there is no difference between an acute disease like a flu and a chronic disease like depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. The processes are the same, mm-hmm. except okay. in an acute disease, it's maybe very amplified. In a chronic disease, the same thing, like even in terms of the immune system, you know, we have these immune chemicals called cytokines and chemokines, the same immune chemicals that get activated in an acute disease are the same ones that are getting activated in chronic disease. So that's why I say no salads, but you can have any fruits, any vegetables, um, you can eat fruits raw, but no uh, vegetables have to be cooked, sauteed, steamed, baked, however you like to, or you can make it into a smoothie and have it. Okay. Uh, so, so no greens then, no greens, no gluten, no, no leafy greens. Yeah. But you can make it into a smoothie is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Can we talk about inflammation? Because this is an, another yes. area that I've studied a lot and yes. I'm really interested because I know there is, there, there is some study now that connect mental illness to inflammation. Absolutely. So yes. what can we eat to avoid inflammation or to fight it? If you're in a state of health, anything that is organic, non-processed, whole and real food, you will be able to eat and digest, especially if you're eating it seasonally. Like now we are going into fall and winter, please stop eating the melons. This is not the time to eat melons. This is the time to bring on the the fleshier squashes, the pumpkins, the sweet potatoes, even organic white potatoes also, you know, Mm -hmm. no harm in that. Um, All these complex carbs, because as we go into winter, we need more calorie rich foods to consume. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're eating real food, whole food, unprocessed, no junk, and eating seasonally, then you will be able to keep inflammation uh, in check. Mm-hmm. Okay. But cool. always check with yourself because mm-hmm. we are all different. You know, what works for one person may not work. Okay. The question I'm asking myself now, because I'm always trying to put myself in in the position of my listeners is, oh, they must be thinking about this. Okay. So they have a doctor, they have a psychiatrist, they've been taking medication and of course they shouldn't stop it, but where can they find people like you? Because they will go back to the doctor and they say, yeah, that's BS. Yeah. Just go back. Just let's just increase your medication. So uh, where can they find doctors like you? That's See, I the think functional challenge. medicine. Yeah. I mean, you'll have to look for holistic psychiatrists or, um, you know, functional medicine trained psychiatrists, uh, something like that. I know I'm in the minority, unfortunately. I mean, I was just at a conference for uh, health and wellness professionals. I think it uh, out of 400 people that attended, it was me and I don't know if there was a, maybe one other person who was doing a slightly different form of holistic psychiatry 
but hardly anybody. Holistic psychiatry is very much in the minority. So very discouraging. (laughs) No, 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 not at all. I mean, this is, that's why, you know, you know, now there are many books that people can read. Okay, Um, great. So Mark Hyman has written a book called The Ultra Mind Solution. That's a good one to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, Parenting a Whole Child uh, by Scott Shannon. He's a child psychiatrist and he actually practices in Colorado. I think he's just outside of Denver. He's a child psychiatrist and he's he's one of the first people that I learned from. Um, amazing. So, I mean, there are ways that you can still, uh, but but remember, healing from mental illness is first healing your body. So you have to, and, and the diet that I recommend, the elimination diet, that is the first step. Mm-hmm. So no dairy, no gluten, no corn, no soy, and no eggs for about three months. That is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. So that that is the first step to reclaiming your health and vitality. We do offer consultations online, so I do see mm-hmm. patients um, outside. We have a team that we we can take on uh, some more new patients if anybody's interested. Yes, can and can you can you do it in other states? Because in the U.S., it's all about the states, right? Can you? Yeah, can I mean, I, I offer. Patients? Yes, yeah, I do. I do see patients outside of because we don't. Uh, you know, for the only difference is I don't prescribe medications for out of state uh, mm-hmm. patients. You'll have to continue, but I will recommend a taper that you can continue with your uh, provider. Okay. But everything else that we can to heal your body, to heal your trauma, we take care of that. Because, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Six to nine months is the average duration that people need to uh, spend for treatment. Wow, we could, we could, I'll make sure to have all your contacts on the notes so people can contact you, your website, mm-hmm. telephone number, everything. But also if you could send me a list of books and maybe yes. websites yeah. that people can it's go all to. On my, it's all on my website. So On your website. The- Would they find like leaflets on what to eat, what to avoid and all of that? Would they find things like that? Not that, uh, but I'm actually coming up with a course. It'll take a, uh, you know, course for patients. You know, that would be something that it'll take yeah. me about three months, maybe, maybe a little longer than that mm-hmm. to put the course together. I'm working on it because yeah. yes, it, it is for this. I know I cannot work one-on-one with everyone. Even, sure. <laughs> even though yeah, like yeah. there's so many people struggling and they want yeah. answers and many of them, they can do it on their own. They don't exactly. need to go to a doctor, but they need the information, the correct exactly. one and so where to find it. That's exactly what I'm working on is to make a course where, and we will give you ways to kind of, in and you know, it depends. I know some people need definitely clinical help, but even, I mean, the diet that I'm recommending, I would highly encourage all your patients if they did nothing, just to go on the elimination diet. Of course, the first week you will go through withdrawal and that's when you will realize how, I mean, if you, how it's bad like it withdrawal, is, right? how bad it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you will go through. What withdrawal. does it look like? What does it look like the withdrawal from all these processed foods? Headaches, flu-like mm-hmm. symptoms, uh, sometimes throwing up irritability is a big one, but uh, foggy brain fog, uh, mm. just feeling like you're coming down with something. It's that's all inflammation. I want to go to my pantry right now and just get rid of all the bones, <laughs> even though I eat quite healthy. I mean, comparing, <laughs> mm-hmm. but still it's hard because in this country it's hard, but I love what you say. Just don't go into the aisles, stay in yeah. the periphery. That's stay why the, the fruits yes. and, and cheese. Well, you, you said no dairy. So, okay. Let me, let me ask you something. You said no dairy and no uh, gluten. 
What yeah. if you don't have any reaction? Like me, I can eat dairy as much as I want. I can eat gluten as much as I don't have any reaction. So why should I stop? See, the thing is, unless you've done an elimination diet, you don't know. I used to think that. And I see, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I had PCOS, uh, polycystic ovarian disease. And uh, what else did I have? I was overweight and I was uh, pre-diabetic. I'd struggled with infertility. So, wow. But I don't have it. I mean, I'm 46 and I don't have, I was much, much sicker when I was in my twenties than I am now. I mean, I, I don't have these chronic uh, hmm. conditions. And I was, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis and I was developing symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis in my early thirties. So in, in a way, me going down this path, I, I didn't realize how much it was going to benefit me. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was, uh, that I cannot tolerate gluten. Um, but again, so what we do at the end of three months is that we reintroduce in a very, so this is part of, you know, the advantage to working with somebody like me is that we reintroduce in a very clear fashion to see whether it works for you or not. But in, in Ayurveda, what we say is that if you are eating real food and if your digestion is healthy, then you can eat anything as mm -hmm. long as you can digest. So most of our treatments in Ayurvedic medicine is geared towards restoring that digestive fire or digestive abilities. Mm -hmm. So once your digestion is restored, you will, even though you may not tolerate it right now, at some point in time, you will be able to. So most of my patients, they're not eating this diet forever. Only maybe autism patients, really, they cannot digest dairy and gluten. Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know so, that. Yeah. So... Um, so that is the, so autism patients is one where I do caution the parents, uh, and adults with autism that they may struggle with it. That's one thing that we do see, but most of my patients are able to go back to consuming a little bit of dairy, a little bit of gluten, and they can, um, and definitely corn, soy, eggs, eggs, and everybody can reintroduce at the end of three months. Mm -hmm. So, but during those three months, we have a very prescribed protocol with which we, restore the gut lining we restore the digestive fire um, mm -hmm. and that's what okay. we do so it's not just eliminating and waiting no you have to do some things you eliminate the bad and you provide the good that's all we do over and over and over again until you become healthy well so. Aruna you better finish that course <laughs> Yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> because is... you can find, of course, all this information is out there. Like you said, oh, Dr. Google is there. There's so many videos, but it's all scattered, right? Because I know because I was struggling with inflammation on my back for almost a year now. And I kept researching in food to anti-inflammation anti food. And you find one little video that tells you a little bit and then another one that tells a little and you're going yeah but is that enough because it's so scattered so we need someone to give us the abc the a to z not exactly. just the a the f the l and the I, I i agree i mean for me too it took me a good six months after all my like in 2014 2015 i remember i had all this but even to implement that in my own home for myself and my family it was a challenge. It's, it's, it is, it's it is, yeah, it is, it is so. because it's more work too, right? It's more work. It is more work. It's I'm, much I'm, easier I'm to open a box. <laughs> yes. But I will tell you, um, but it's habit, right? It is Aruna, habit. It's habit. I have changed so many, even my, my eating habits. I don't eat like f sugar, uh, fried foods. The only thing I eat here and there is, is 
fries because I love them, but I avoid all of them. Alcohol, very little alcohol. I do exercise. I mean, I try, but I'm sure I'm, I'm still making huge mistakes like cheese. You talked about cheese and I went, oh, if my husband were here, he would go, oh, oh she can't do that because I love cheese and all of that. And I really well, don't have any you, reaction. The food that you love is probably the one that's causing you the most harm. That's what we see. So when you say, really? oh, no, I'm not, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <but> that's <laughs> bad news. <laughs> but again, it, it's not that you're eliminating it forever. It's temporary. Of course. Yeah, Only yeah. to restore your gut lining. And then, okay. and then, you know, go to good sources of the cheese. Once you mm. eliminate and then you reintroduce that's when if if you can, if it's a good food, truly a good food for you, you will enjoy the food and it will not cause you any yeah. problems. Yeah. So- Let me ask you just one more thing, because I want to help those uh, who are thinking about, okay, so how, how can I taper off? Of course, they're not doing it on their own because they have to do it with a doctor if they're taking psychiatric medication. But what does it look like usually? Because it's a very scary thing. I know because I've taken psychiatric medication, only took it for 10 months for depression after my father, uh, my father's suicide. Mm-hmm. So I struggled with that and it helped me at the time and I tapered off and never went back to it again. That was like almost 20 years ago. But I have a sister, for example, that she's, she's tried to get off medication Mm -hmm. she's been since again since my dad's death she's Mm -hmm. been taking psychiatric medication for i don't know almost 20 years now and she's tried but you know how it is you stop three days later you were like immobile in bed in a black hole right Uh, and it's really hard and then she goes yeah i can't stop see i can't stop because it it's no maybe maybe you can't but you don't know how Right. Yes. But that is withdrawal. So what your sister is going through is actually withdrawal. That's what's happening there. That's Mm -hmm. why I say that these are these medications are very habit forming. They're no different from alcohol and opiates and all those other medications. And in especially antidepressants, very, very real increase. Addictive. And not only addictive, but they do increase suicidality. There is no. They do. Yeah. I mean, even that. Now it has to be on their labels, right? Finally, after years and years and years, I think it's yeah. FDA. Yeah, There's they, a black box warning. It's, yeah, uh, but it has to yeah. be as a warning, yeah, which yeah. never makes sense, right? I mean, how can you think that some, something is fighting theoretically depression, but it's going to increase in suicidal, suicidality? How does that make any sense? Because it is such a, actually the, the process is actually through a side effect called akathisia. Hmm. That's what. That? Akathisia is a side effect that is very specific to different psychiatric medications, antidepressants and um, anti-psychotic medications, all of these things. And what happens with akathisia is that intense uh, anxiety and restlessness where the people feel like they're jumping out of their skin Mm -hmm. and they become almost psychotic and bizarre in their behavior. Mm -hmm. Like I just, uh, last week I saw a patient who took Prozac for five days Mm-hmm. And he was having akathisia and he became suicidal. Mm-hmm. But in this state of akathisia, people can also become homicidal. See, wow. they, that is the other thing that people don't talk about. The, mm-hmm. the These are the, but Peter Gosha, uh, the Danish physician, um, he has done lots of YouTube videos. He's He's been interviewed extensively. Uh, he's a statistician physician. And so he's mm-hmm. done tons of meta-analysis. And um, that's why he says that, almost all psychiatric medications should be banned 
is what mm. he says. So, oh my God. Yeah. That's but so to worrisome. answer your question, <laughs> taper can only happen after there is some improvement in the physiological functioning, in the inflammation, mm -hmm. nutritional uh, status is improved, detoxification, all of this needs to happen for a month or so before we can start. And when I start the taper, number one is that I prepare the person to have the right attitude. No fear. If you're afraid, it's not going to work out. Mm. It's mind over matter. So we work on sympathetic, uh, reducing the sympathetic arousal. We mm -hmm. teach staying in that parasympathetic state. And then when we initiate the taper, the patient is in charge. I, I'm just kind of making sure that everything is okay. The patient is in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. So the patient tells me, yeah, I'm tolerating this. I can, I mean, once they, once the patient gets the feel for how it is, how much they can tolerate. And so sometimes we, we do it every week. I mean, some of my patients are like, nope, I'm done. I, I don't want to take this anymore. And very quickly they go through the taper process. Mm -hmm. Whereas for some others who are maybe want to be a little bit more cautious, it will take like anxious. I mean, this old, well, yeah. I mean, my 72 year old patient, she was very anxious. So we took our time with it, but of ultimately course, yeah. she's off of that. And mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen her in almost, I want to say four or five months, which is a good thing. She's doing well. Yeah, yeah, so cool. yeah, it, it sounds like you have to take care. First of all, as, as you said, take care of your body. You have to prepare your body to be healthy so that you can get rid of that medication and take care of itself on its own, right? Yes. And yeah. then psychologically prepare because it is something we humans, we love control, right? Or the illusion of control, because that's what it is. Nobody <laughs> controls anything. But anything, the idea that you taking that medication every day, you will be fine and you're taking care of your health and you'll be feeling better. And it's actually treatment. The moment you stop, that's a scary thing, right? Yes. Yeah. And it goes against everything that we hear from this culture right mm -hmm. yeah. so you you really have to 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 get rid of of your fears too yes yeah well dr tomala we have to stop otherwise but i would love to stay with you because this is a topic yes. that i love uh because i worry so i worry much. so much about my patients they come to me with all these mental health and it's just substituting one by no, I'm okay with the depression, but now I'm anxious. And then they take something for the anxiety and they go, no, I think now I'm a bipolar actually. And then they're taking something else for that because they, someone gives them and they just pile up, pile yes. up on substances and chemicals. And, and I remember a client that I had every time she came in, Every week, it was a new psychiatrist. Oh, I, I don't think this one is working. I think I need to just change my med. It's all she talked about. It was the medication. And she always came in with this huge diet Coke that she was drinking all day. And mm -hmm. I'm looking at her. So, oh, my God. It's so, I, I worry about them because yeah, it's the yeah. message we get, right? So cultural. And and also from the physicians. I mean, it, I that used to be what? One uh, patient that I worked with back in 2006 in my residency, also but she was she had PTSD. There was no question about that. Mm -hmm. Very traumatic childhood, very obese. Every week she would come into the session with a can of uh, the orange soda. Mm. You know, the, I don't know, Fanta, the Fanta, Fanta. <laughs> Fanta, with how many of a grams of sugar, and she would go in and she was getting ready to get a bariatric surgery. 
which I'm totally against because that, you know, everything is all our health and disease comes from the gut and you go and chop up the gut in God knows how many ways. How is it mm -hmm. going to help? So, and I was like, you know, why would you, why don't you drink water? And she's like, oh, water doesn't taste good. That's why I drink Fanta. This is how I keep myself hydrated. And I'm like, no, all that sugar is actually going to make you pee more because it mm -hmm. increases the osmolarity. And, you know, you pee more when you drink concentrated liquid. So it's, uh, but interestingly, her other, even her bariatric, I mean, I don't know, they were not giving the dietary advice first. And I think this is a problem on the part of physicians where we think that, oh, the patient may not do it or may, or the, it's too much for the patient to, uh, like when I say you have to change your diet, eat organic. Uh, and some of my colleagues will say, oh, but that's, you know, I work with inner city population. They cannot afford organic. I'm like, how do you know? I don't know that. Who am I to decide uh, my patient's preferences when it comes to their spending habits? Mm -hmm. My job is to give them the information get them to decide how they're going to live their life. Yeah. Right. So oh, well. these are some things that as physicians, we have to change our thinking. Around. Yeah. And I don't even want to go there because I'm sure you have some horror stories <laughs> on how hard it was for you to finish your, I don't know if it was doctorate or whatever here, uh, the kind of pushback that you received and it was awful yeah <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> I, I'm not going there because that's another whole episode no, I'm sure you have that, horror stories I did I did and it was a traumatic experience but because of that you know that there was a, uh, a silver lining out of the trauma if I had not experienced that I wouldn't have left and started my practice mm -hmm. where I have full freedom and innovation Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have to, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, my, the only person I answer to is the patient in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of the stories you told me, but we're not going to go there, but uh, it, it was traumatic. I mean, if you don't prescribe medication, it's liability because that's what this country is all about. It's liability. Mm -hmm. So if it's liability, you can't work here because you have to prescribe. You have to say, mm -hmm. you have to, to show that you did something right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Anyway, I do want to thank you so much for your time. And thank you. I Paula, hope my me. listeners uh, take the, at least the first step and do some research. I'll have as many links as I can on my notes to help them. But and if they, they want to find you, I'll have the, your telephone number, your contacts and everything. And I hope some of them will contact you. And I might even contact you for that because I'm sure I need to change a few things. Thank you so much for this time and for helping me and my listeners. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.